0: Welcome to the Humanity in the Loop podcast. I'm your host, Kim Hampton. My guest today is Eric Miller. Eric is the director of the Ecological Footprint Initiative, a research, training, and analytics hub that produces the national ecological footprint and biocapacity accounts used around the world. The initiative is housed in the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change at York University. Eric has two undergraduate degrees, a BSc in biology from Carleton University, a BA in economics from McMaster, and an MES in ecological macroeconomics from New York University. Today we are going to discuss a report titled Measuring York's Carbon and Ecological Footprints, which Eric produced. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. So, Eric, what has motivated your academic and professional journey to date?
1: Uh, I've been motivated by sort of responding to the challenge before us, which is how to do um, better economically in a way that's respectful of our interrelationships with lands and waters um, around us. Um, I start off my interest in, in science and the natural sciences and then I appreciated that so much of what was going on from a natural science perspective in the natural world, so-called natural world, uh, is of course heavily influenced by humans. And so the question arose, well, why are humans affecting the natural world in this way? What are the things that mediate that, those effects? And what mediates those effects is what we call the economy. And so that got me interested in uh, questions about um, the economy, about economics and so on. And that led me on my journey from the natural sciences into the social sciences with a focus on economics and ultimately on ecological economics, which is one of the phrases that, um, we use sort of to codify that sort of um, frame of reference.
0: So what motivated York university to commission the ecological footprint initiative team you lead to assess greenhouse. Uh, so to assess its greenhouse gas emissions and ecological footprint.
1: So York is motivated to uh, understand its greenhouse gas emissions because universities around the world and institutions around the world are increasingly being asked to report on them. Um, at the university level, uh, universities are increasingly being asked about their greenhouse gas emissions by various ranking agencies, reporting systems, and so on. Um, And at the same time, even domestically, like in Ontario, in Canada, um, York University is also increasingly paying some portion of the cost of the greenhouse gas emissions that historically have been free to emit. And so that raises some important questions for York. Um, What are the greenhouse gas emissions related directly to the work that we do? and how much are embodied in all the goods and services that we as a university purchase from others in service of providing the outcomes of the education, the training, capacity building, the knowledge, mobilization, et cetera, all the good stuff that the university does. And so, um, in, in that realm, um, what are the emissions? What are the things that relate directly to our own accountabilities and our own choices? what are the ones that relate indirectly to the stuff that we purchased? Um, how exposed are we, um, to, um, in the rest of the economy to, um, challenges that, um, you know, might, might, um, might present themselves, um, with, um, increasing, the um, costs of carbon emissions and so on. And, um, specifically, um, How do we get to something called net zero emissions that's something that countries around the world have aspired to do and so that's going to filter down trickle down to the individual institutions and and families and persons and so on so that's what really motivated having um, a great sense not only of the overall picture but of the incredible detail down to level of specific things that are purchased specific commuters specific people within the university system whether they're undergraduate students graduate students faculty staff etc um, and so yeah so that motivated York to consider that and uh, similar motivations are, um, are are making it such that universities across the country and around the world are undertaking emission assessments um and so that was the starting point of this now what's really I, I I guess unique about UARC University is that we have a great capacity to be able to do this internally in the university through this thing called the Ecological Footprint Initiative, which is a a data analytics kind of hub that does a lot of number crunching. And we do that not only to understand emissions, but also to understand ecological footprint and biocapacity. So I can elaborate on what those, um, you know, what those terms um, mean. Um, in, you know, surely as I speak more about what the initiative does, but, uh, in any case, York university is, um, a global leader in generating information about ecological footprint, which is a measure of the areas of lands and waters needed to, um, support us with food, with building materials, with spaces we occupy, with our infrastructure, our buildings and so on, um, and also the uh, amount of lands and waters needed to soak up the carbon emissions that we emit through burning fossil fuels, and so in a way, ecological footprint is an even more comprehensive measure than just emissions alone. And so we, um, as an uh, as the ecological footprint initiative, we generate this uh, for the world on a national basis, on an international basis, and we can also do this on a much more focused basis um, down to the level of an enterprise or of a university. And so that's why York decided to choose our initiative to undertake this assessment, as opposed to, let's say, um, procuring the services of a consulting uh, company outside of the university.
0: So you've gone into some detail about what you look at, but I am curious to know, what is the raw data that you use to come to your conclusions and, and how much do you have to adjust for, you know, the, sometimes the lack of certainty that comes with data sources?
1: Yeah. So we, um, we built a database that could integrate, um, a lot of, uh, input data from across the university. Um, I'll give you some, uh, some details so you can appreciate, uh, the level of, um, you know, the level of data that we were working with. Um, so we, um, were provided a dump of, um, all the expenses besides salaries, um, of the university of all goods and services so there are about um, 1,200 different um, account codes that relate to all sorts of interesting details. Um, as one example, um, there's one specific account number that's used for the purchase of disposable cutlery. <laughs> and so that's the level of detail that we have this information about. Um, and um, so with, with all those expense accounts, we, we have all those details of the dollar spend And then we match those to the sectors that are supplying those goods or services. Because in those sectors, we have sector-level information about the emissions that are embodied in the full supply chain with what they provide. So we have some sense on a per dollar uh, amount what the embodied emissions um, are. And that's one of the ways we can figure out the emissions embodied in all the procurement that the university uh, does. Now, that's the... um, that's one part of the piece. Um, a very important part of the piece of, uh, you know, of, of the overall emissions puzzle is commuting emissions. And so for community emissions, we had details about the number of people living in certain postal in, in, by distinct postal codes. And then for each of the postal codes, we had the data of all the parking permit purchases, uh, over the time period. And so what we we're able to do, and we also had data of, um, for the students, um, how many are, um, like what the course load was for the students. So we could essentially derive the full-time equivalent number of students per each postal code, which is important because some students are part-time. Now they're part-time, they're not going to be commuting as much as if they're full-time, et cetera. So we have the data about the students. We have data about faculty and staff, by postal, by postal codes, and knowing from each postal code, the distance it takes to get to either the Keel campus or the Glendon campus, we've sense sense of the distance traveled. And then based on the amount of um, parking permits and also related to the amount of pay as you go parking, uh, supplemented to that, et cetera, we're able to essentially derive a model of what the uh, mode was used to travel from that postal code to one of the two campuses. We have other survey data about the amount of active transportation on a postal code basis. Some of the postal codes close to you those campuses will have people that are walking, cycling, uh, et cetera. Uh, if you live on campus, you're walking, so there's no uh, driving at all or no transit. Um, mm-hmm. and then with that kind of level of data, we're able to derive the, um, the, the, um, the volume of commuting, um, to campus. We're able to sort out the proportion that are active transportation, the proportion that are driving, uh, alone. And then the residual amount needed to get the remaining people to the campus then has to be logically by transit. Um, and then by transit, depending on the postal code, some transit is all electric. Like if you live in the city of Toronto, it's possible to take either walk to the subway, which is electric right to the campus or walk to a sub a streetcar, which is electric and get you to the subway where some other postal codes, part of your journey involves, um, a bus that's burning um, diesel or some amount of diesel and so on. There are some electric buses, but they're not very common, et cetera. Or if you live in Hamilton, for example, as I do, you're taking a GO bus, which is um, internal combustion engine. Uh, Nevertheless, the emissions per passenger kilometer are less than a single occupant vehicle, et cetera. So um, crunching that kind of those those numbers together, that's how we're able to derive the emissions relating to commuting to uh, York's um, campuses. Um, we also had the dump of all of the, um, all the flight reimbursement records, um, done across the university, get down to the detail of the individual flight, the, that's the starting point. Um, the, the arrival, uh, point, um, uh, the flight class, which is very important because, um, the flight class, uh, relates to the amount of emissions embodied, you know, sort of in that seat, uh, essentially. And so we've got data around that. And then we also have very detailed data around the, um, the fuels and energy that was consumed by York university, um, at its, all of its campuses. And that's really important because that relates of course, to the emissions related to the consumption of electricity or the generation of electricity, uh, which is the case at York university, where it has an on-campus power plant at its Kiel campus. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, a bit of a sampling of the, the data of the details that we had to work with. And it's really important to have those kind of levels of detail. Now, a university can still figure out, roughly speaking, what its emissions are based on even just aggregated data, but the more specific information you get, the, the higher the confidence you have in the assessment. And that's, I think, what distinguishes the work that we did at New York University as compared to some of the other universities' uh, assessments of emissions which I've, which I've looked at a lot of the other universities' uh, assessments were done by research teams that didn't have as much fine-level detail information as we did.
0: Yeah, so you certainly um, uh, uh, sort of detailed just how detailed the the analysis this is. This is not a back-of-the-envelope thing. This is the back of a million envelopes. Um, but what's what's also interesting is not just the, the depth, but also the breadth. It's the fact that you're looking at... Uh, not just what what york pays for but what people york pay you know people who york pay what they turn around and do in, in terms of emissions with the commuting and everything which does that imply that york is taking on some responsibility for the choices people make and if, and and this may be getting outside the scope of the report but just as somebody is interested can you speculate on what york can do to improve that mix mhm well, there's
1: lots of possibilities, but also constraints of what Europe can do um and and that's really interesting, sort of from a a future looking perspective. And just to clarify the assessment that that we did was reporting on what has been the emissions. but it's a really rich data set that can be used to explore the possibilities into the future of what could be mm-hmm. and scenarios in the future. and um, So on on your question there, um, what's the role of York University in providing, let's say, um, some variations in the standard work arrangements Mm. that might affect the amount of commuting that is necessary or expected among faculty, staff, and students. Um, the, obviously the experience of being in lockdown during part of the pandemic um, really showed to people that there are, you know, there are possibilities and certainly technical feasibilities nowadays to have more flexible work arrangements than we previously thought was, was sort of typical. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that possibility, one, just changing the amount of commuting that's necessary to uh, enjoy the, the richness of the experience and the accomplishments of, of all that one gets through the university. And the second thing can be also not just the um, the amount of commuting, but also the how. And to the extent the university can play a role in making it easier for people to find a match to carpool with, that can be helpful. The extent to which the university can use this information to work with transit agencies to figure out um, better, more optimal transit routing and so on that can also be very positive as well. Um, there is also a lot of interest nowadays, even in, for those who are, let's say a drive, even if it's a single occupant vehicle or ideally a high occupant vehicle where they're traveling with at least one or two other people in the car, uh, there's also the question of the, um, the mechanism by which that car is powered. Is it internal combustion engine? Is it electric? Is it some combination of them? Um, and so that. Dimension as well. The university could potentially play a role uh, in that through either, um, you know, either um, sort of nudging that somehow recognizing it, um, be more preferential towards high-occupant uh, vehicles that are electric, let's say, um, making it uh, making the options of I don't know parking, let's say, more preferable to that versus others, etc. Um, there's lots of possibilities. Uh, in that in that realm, the awesome thing with this level of detail in the data is that we can quantify what those scenarios could look like if York were to be successful. The other thing we can do, too, is appreciate that it's not only York University that's faced with this challenge of how to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and how to induce changes in the frequency of commuting, in the patterns of commuting, in the choice of how to commute, and even the choice of the vehicle if one is using a vehicle an individual vehicle to commute. This is happening across society. And so that's also an interesting part of the sort of the future question is how much is on the shoulders of York University and/or how much is going to be happening sort of in any case in the background, as, for example, the federal government is putting an end date onto the production of new internal combustion vehicles, as on a GTA-wide basis, Metrolinks and other transit agencies are trying their best to induce shifts in transportation towards transit. Uh, they're trying to electrify transit much more, uh, et cetera. And all of those changes are incrementally going to add up to reductions in emissions compared to a baseline. Um, and, um, and we can be looking at that on a scenario basis.
0: So one of the... Uh, terms that jumped out at me in the report is, uh, and it was it was the capital letters that made it jump out at me. Greenhouse Gas Protocol. Uh, so, what is the greenhouse gas protocol? Whose protocol is it, and how is it applied to this effort? Yeah. So, the greenhouse
1: gas protocol is a um, it's a protocol that was developed by the World Business Council on Sustainable Development, working with the World Resources Institute. Um, some time ago, more than a decade ago, that was meant to provide clarity and consistency with the way that enterprises would report on their missions. And the way it does that is is it comes up with categories or what it calls scopes. So there's scope one, scope two, and scope three, which all relate to sort of definitions as to what's counted in each of those. And they also provide clarity around some of the methods that one can use to... um, to, you know, to estimate or to measure, um, the emissions attributed to those scopes. And so the logic is that, um, scope one is representing the emissions that relate to, um, the direct control of the institution. So it's emissions relating to the tailpipes of the vehicles that are owned or used by the institution. So in the case of York university, the vehicles on campus used by like for snow removal used for, um, you know, the maintenance of the, of of the campus security, et cetera. Those are York university vehicles, whether they're owned by the university or leased by some other provider, those are the ones where York university employees are turning on the engines and they're fueling them up with, uh, with fuels. Um, York university also has, um, it, it burns gas to, um, heat buildings to um, power the uh, laboratories, um, et cetera. It also generates its own electricity on campus as well. That's all relates to your direct emissions um, from its own facilities. And so that's all captured by scope one. And then this protocol asserts that scope two is meant to um, account for the emissions that are embodied in the electricity that the organization purchases. And uh, of course that can, you know, depending on where you are in the world, uh, electricity may or may not be very emissions intensive. Uh, in Ontario, Ontario's electricity grid is not emissions intensive. So that's the good news there. Um, there's, uh, it, it used to be much more emissions intensive when we were burning coal to generate electricity, to generate about 20% of our electricity back in uh, 2005 and earlier. Um, but we don't burn any coal in Ontario anymore. There is some gas that's burned to generate electricity. That's to supplement the other forms of electricity generation, which are mostly um, non-carbon emitting. Um, So that's scope two. And then scope three is related to the goods and services that are not captured in scopes one and two uh, that relate to emissions embodied in those things. And so that's where in scope three, we have things like emissions related to uh, commuting. Uh, we also have uh, the emissions relating to York's procurements of goods and services, um, everything from you know paper that's purchased to um, information technology services that it acquires, um, to, for example, and this is very significant for uh, a, a university like York, the, the construction of new buildings in support of its growing um, enrollment of students and its, its, its broadening of the number of schools and faculties and so on that it has. Um, and, uh, construction, uh, is very emissions dense. It's very emissions intensive uh, upfront because of all the materials that are used in constructing and building, um, and, and very emissions intensive, certainly yeah, cement, steel, and those building materials, uh, et cetera. For the newer buildings nowadays, the idea is that there might be even a higher amount of embodied emissions upfront in order to reduce the amount of emissions in the future. Through things like better insulation, better design, and so on, that can uh, you know reduce the uh, let's say the scope two or scope one emissions in the future by better designing the buildings up front, which means a higher upfront uh, hit on scope three emissions. And so that's the protocol. And um, the nice thing with this protocol again is it provides sort of uh, consistency in the way these things are reported, so that um, York University's emissions can be compared to um, other institutions' emissions down to the level of comparing their scope 1s against each other, scope 2s against each other, scope 3s, etc. And it's also important, too, because at this point, more and more of the world's um, emissions are being measured and priced, but they're not all priced yet and not all so directly measured along the supply chain. So there's still a lot of question marks. Like, if we... If York University asks, let's say it's, it's paper suppliers, what are the emissions embodied you know, per sheet or per ton or per box or whatever, per card of paper? And some companies can reveal that because they've done the calculations and some haven't yet done the full calculation. So there's a lot of this calculation stuff happening at this very moment. And the more that other organizations calculate their scope one and two emissions, the easier it is for York to ask for that So that when York is deriving its scope three emissions, it can correctly embody exactly what their emissions
0: uh, are. So there are a couple of really interesting threads to pull on there. One is that um, it's no accident, I think, that you are interested in both ecology and economy. um, Because there's a couple of things like, for example, a net present value analysis to be done that's financial, but also a net present kind of emissions analysis to be done. The more we, the more we admit upfront, theoretically, the less we admit in the future. And there's a, there's a way to calculate the true long-term impact. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, the other thing is I don't know, uh, how carbon credits in that, in the carbon markets work, but we have a concept, we have a harmonized sales tax, a value added tax in Canada, HST. Um, and there's this notion of an input tax credit. So if I sell you a piece of paper. Um, and then you sell that piece of paper again. You don't pay the full H. You know, you don't you don't have to come up with the full HST. That they, they pay some, and then your customer pays some, and you pay some in the mm-hmm. middle. Does that happen with carbon, or does everybody pay the full carbon load for every step? Well, that's um, the short answer. Is it's changing,
1: and it depends where in the world that part of the supply chain is. Um, so at this point in um, In in this year of 2023, um, the estimate, I believe, the latest estimate is about, um, on a global perspective, I think it's um, just under about a quarter of all emissions happen in jurisdictions with some carbon pricing system. And the carbon pricing system, you can categorize them in two different realms. One is a a direct price per each unit um, in the form of something like a carbon tax which is that per each um, uh, ton of emissions or per each liter of fuel that's consumed and so on, this is the price that's paid based on the carbon content uh, within that. The other approach is what's often referred to as um, sort of um, emissions cap, often emissions cap and trade kind of system, which is more of a quantity constraint, which does induce sort of changes in the prices of fuels and so on, but it's more around, sort of capping the quantity of emissions to a certain level in the jurisdiction, and then allowing all those who are emitting to sort amongst them who is going to be making the reductions at what price, and then they can buy and sell credits and so on. Right. And so, um, regardless of it, whether it's a direct, um, sort of price-based approach to meeting that, or whether it's a quantity-based approach that induces price changes, um, that's, you know, about a quarter of the world's emissions or so are, are captured in, in a jurisdiction of one form or the other. When you get down into the details, the comprehensiveness of that system in each country varies a bit. Um, in Canada, I think the estimate is around. Uh, I think it's the Pan Canadian um, pricing framework. I think the 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 aim is to capture something around eighty something percent um, of of all emissions through that system, and um, um, and and so the logic there is that. Um, as the good or service moves through the supply chain, each of those entities, when they're adding their value to it, um, the fuel that they consume to do that, the materials that they consume to do that have carbon pricing built into it. And so that their um, value add to that comes at the cost that includes the notional carbon price, let's say. Okay. So that's, that's the objective so that as it goes through the chain, um, okay. You know the 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 incremental uh, emissions are being added on, so that if you're the final consumer of that thing, by the time it reaches you, uh, the price you're paying includes the emissions embodied throughout its supply chain. Okay, but of course, especially in Canada, we engage with a lot of trade with the rest of the world, and the rest of the world is not completely at that scope yet. So there's some really interesting policy proposals as to how to sort of cover the shortcomings and so on. Um, but for the time being, you've got sort of a, a bit of a mix as to, um, some of the things that, um, that we purchased, there is a, a price of, uh, carbon sort of embodied in them. The price might vary depending upon how much domestic versus imported content there is. And also on the imported content, depending on where it's coming from in the world, it might be higher or low emissions, uh, embodied in that.
0: So if I understood correctly, Canada has a, a, um, carbon price as opposed to cap and trade.
1: It varies on a provincial basis. Uh, so in Ontario, um, it's a carbon uh, tax. Uh, it's a it's a price based approach, and um, whereas previously in Ontario we had a cap and trade system, uh, so we've actually experienced both in Ontario. Um, some provinces still have or or use a cap and trade kind of system. For example, Quebec next to us. Um, and, and their system is linked in with um, a similar system in California, for example, so they can between those jurisdictions, um, if it's the case that um, a company in, in Quebec is um, is um, figuring out how it can reduce emissions based on in you know, um, revising uh, the, uh, the system that uses to um, sterilize the, uh, the soup cans as it moves along the assembly line or something like that, Um, the emission reductions, it could potentially be selling to either other companies in Quebec or in California that could be paying them for that credit. And the logic is that greenhouse gas emissions are a global problem um, with global consequences because the atmosphere is essentially like a a, a global common pool resource, essentially. So, as much as we would like the idea of trying to reduce emissions close by as much as possible. as long as the emission reductions are happening on a planetary basis, then that's you know just as well for for the case of reducing the amount of emissions, humidity in the atmosphere. So that's where um, cap and trade systems, if they're very comprehensive, if they're spanning the globe, um, then then that can be very useful because um, it can still achieve the global objectives of reducing emissions potentially at a lesser cost if there's opportunities to reduce emissions on an easier basis in other jurisdictions, and then we pay for that so the credit goes to us. And then they sell that as essentially carbon reduction services.
0: Uh, One thing that jumped out to me from the report is that self-generated electricity at Keel was significantly more emission intensive than grid-supplied electricity. What are the implications of this? And I'll, I'll sort of frame the question as, you know, uh, York has a cogeneration system, so you you get two benefits from the natural gas you burn. You make electricity, you also make heat. The heat, in turn, can heat the campus. Or, uh, I don't understand the physics of it, but you can use it to actually cool the campus too. There's a reaction that can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the margins our grid is natural gas powered. So at the margins, we're actually more efficient than the grid because we're, we're recovering the heat in ways that are useful, but in, in the, in totality, the grid is quite clean in Ontario. As you point out, we have nuclear, um, hydro and that sort of thing. So I guess I'm, I'm exploring two things is what are the implications of us discovering that, um, the cogen is quite uh, carbon intensive, but also how do you factor in do, do you compare what we're doing to the grid average or the grid margin? Because if every everybody on campus decided, okay, well, we'll just use the grid then we would all be relying on the marginal part of the grid. It's a long, complicated question, but how do you think through those issues of of the 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 it's sort of the report sort of suggests we just just turn the cogen off completely? But if everybody did that, then we'd all be on natural gas or at least at the margin.
1: Yeah, just for clarity, the report doesn't um, uh, doesn't offer uh, or doesn't prescribe mm-hmm. what to be done, but um, there's a great team um, at, at York Rookie on what to do to reduce um, emissions. And so I can um, comment a bit on on their their thinking of this. So their thinking is to move towards much more purchase of electricity from the grid um, so that York is not generating as much of its own electricity um, and that would significantly reduce emissions. As you know, the system at York is the gas is burned to um, move turbines to generate electricity and then the heat from that is used on a district heating system, but even including the heat on the district energy system, the overall uh, efficiency from a carbon perspective is so much greater to go fully Ontario grid electric. Now, the challenge, as you note, is that if York and everyone else is doing that at the same time that more and more people are plugging electric vehicles into the grid and so on, then there's the question of the sort of the cumulative effects of all this is, um, will the Ontario grid be able to keep up with the electrification of, uh, of what was previously, um, you know, combustion, mobility or combustion oriented heating uh, in Ontario. And so that's the question is before things like the, um, you know, the uh, independent electricity system operators for the Ontario energy board and so on, but that's all sort of wrestling with this. And of course the ministry of energy that's uh, thinking about the long-term plans and what the capacity needs are for ontario etc and um from my read of their read into the future of scenarios it looks like um the baseline case is for the electricity in ontario to become more emissions intensive unless something is deliberately done to change that mm-hmm. because as you know the fallback is to ramp up gas generated or gas uh fire generation uh, of electricity uh in Ontario in the coming decades. Um so that's the question for Ontario. Um how much more um untapped hydro potential could be brought online mm-hmm. potentially? Uh, the big question is about the nuclear uh capacity in Ontario. Um it's certainly a lot of it is quite beyond its its sort of um initially planned full of life. Um, there has been a uh, refurbishment of various, um, units at, um, at Pickering and other, uh, of the reactors at Bruce and so on, A uh, question about, um, yeah, how much more of, of, of that is possible. Big questions around whether to, um, import, um, hydropower from Quebec. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Quebec is ramping up its hydroelectric production, um, and wind in a very large way as well. Um, so there's lots of, I guess, potential in that space, but there's also lots of questions cause it's all about the future. Um, so from a York university perspective, um, what York university can do is it can make scenarios, uh, in the future, we can use the, the baseline if nothing else changes in Ontario and uh, what would that mean for York? And so that might mean a growing of scope two emissions, even if that means a reduction of scope one emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, but by sort of on the basis of number crunching, it looks like certainly, um, York could reduce its scope one emissions way more in excess of what it would increase in scope two emissions by making the shift, um, away from, um, um burning gas on campus to generate electricity and heat. For sure. In
0: 2020, if I'm reading the report correctly, York's emissions were 14% below a comparable benchmark of all Canadian. University emissions. Does the research suggest a reason for this? Does York have advantages or was it a blip in terms of time? Because I noted that it went back up again. So, do you have any in, uh, interpretations of that?
1: Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, one is to appreciate sort of how we did that benchmarking. And so, this benchmarking is um, pretty coarse, I would say. And the logic is that. Um, We use data from Statistics Canada about the um, average amount of emissions per dollar of, um, per dollar of output from all the universities across um, the country. Um, And so with that statistic, there's one statistic of emissions per dollar for every uh, calendar year we get from Statistics Canada. So with that one statistic, we can apply that to York University or to any university and figure out on a national average basis, what would be the um, emissions corresponding to scope one, two, and part of scope three, um, without even going into the details of the university, like what would be that, um, not amount if this particular university were the national average. And so that's how we uh, made that comparison in the York um, new York evaluation and found that there was, uh, in the five-year period that we uh, examined, there was one year where York's emissions um, on a per-dollar equivalent kind of basis were higher than the national average. And that was a year when York um, had a lot of expenses on a new building on campus. And so there's a lot of embodied emissions up front in that, as we spoke about before.
0: Um, and it may impact that our net revenue as well, right? So the net revenue goes down, and the carbon intensity goes up, so the the ratio changes quite significantly.
1: Yeah, and then in the other years um, we were below that um, that benchmark. Um, I found it relatively surprising that we were below the national benchmark. I would have assumed at the start that we were, you know, really close to it. Um, because York university is a very large university in terms of enrollment. it's a very significant, uh, nationally. I'm sorry, I don't know the exact stat in terms of, if it's the, the third or the fourth largest university in the country or something in that realm. And so when you're that big, it would be expected that you would tend to be kind of close to the average, because if you're not, that means that there's gotta be others on the other side of where you are away from the average. And so in this case. Is sort of the interesting question that comes to mind Or with York being below the na- that national benchmark, what are the ones that are above it to make that average? And the thing is that even if I can imagine a lot of the smaller universities potentially being very emissions intensive, um, I mean, how many of them are there that can add up you know, to be the equivalent of something like, for example, UBC, which I imagine would probably have pretty low emissions because it's electricity grid that it taps into is virtually emissions free in BC. Um, and, um, and, and I, I don't know the details of on campus. If, if they, if they have any kind of generation electricity, I imagine they might not, because I think hydro is relatively cheap there. Even so from just a pure fiscal perspective, historically, they probably didn't generate a lot of their own electricity anyways. Um, anyways, but so I think part of the story probably relates to, um, A lot of the universities in the country using not even gas to heat their buildings, but using heating oil, let's say. And heating oil per unit of heat that you derive from that is very emissions intensive. And it's something that's emerged on the national stage now with questions around um, you know, heating oil being more common as a form of heating residential houses and commercial things in certain parts of the country than in others. Mm-hmm. Um, New York University being in Toronto is easy enough to tap into the grid of, of gas, whereas other universities um, maybe don't have the potential there too. So I imagine that's part of the story. Um, the one caveat I would say on, on all this too is that that statistic does not include commuting emissions. Right. And the reason why it doesn't include commuting emissions is that the university doesn't pay for commuting. So that tra- so there's no transaction, uh, there's no transactional purchase of commuting. So therefore, with the um, the the logic of the um, statistic generated by Statistics Canada, there's no embodied emissions uh, in that. So that's where on the national benchmark uh, comparison, we compare York's scope one and two emissions and scope three without commuting to make that comparison consistent with that national statistic. If commuting emissions were added in across the country for all the universities and so on, I, I'm, I'm not sure how York would fares compared to others. It's an interesting uh, question, but I, I think it would come down to very much like, um, you know, uh, come down to the details of, of, um, of um, again, it's not just the, you know, the, not just the number of students, staff and faculty, it's also the, it's, it's the mode the distance that they travel, the frequency by which they commute, um, et cetera. I mean, there are some universities in this country that are more on a sort of distance-based approach. Uh, And there's others where, um, you know, which, where it's almost like in a university town where, um, you know, the the town itself is not very big. And so even those who who were driving from the you know, the suburbs of the town, it's actually not very long of a commute and so on. So anyways, that, that would, would be interesting as a comparison, but, but I was delighted that there was that statistic from Statistics Canada that allows us to have some sense of, of benchmarking. Cause I think that's, that's very important for other universities that might not have the capacity right now to procure a detailed analysis like we did. They can at least use that statistic sort of as the back of the envelope approach uh, to, uh, to answer this question in, in, in the space of like five minutes rather than five months or something like that.
0: So York University is one of the most ambitious net zero targets in the Canadian post-secondary sector, aiming to achieve net zero emissions by 2040, which is a, a decade sooner than its previous commitment. What does the data in your report indicate are the greatest challenges to this target?
1: The, um, probably the, the greatest challenges to getting to net zero emissions by 2040 is mapping out the scenarios of possibilities and constraints to getting there. So that would be more future looking rather than our own assessment. We're just looking back in, in, in history. Um, but so to get there, so York has direct control essentially over its scope one emissions. Around choosing um, the fuels it uses um, to to heat its buildings, to power them, uh, and and you know on the question of grid-supplied electricity versus self-generated electricity, etc., as we spoke about already. So that's scope one and two being rel- you know, within the realm of control of the university. Um, scope three has been more challenging because the way that Europe can affect scope three is how much it purchases of goods and services from others in the economy. Um, but that's going to relate to the volume of educational opportunities and the volume of research undertakes, on uh, et cetera. So that's where it's a bit more, um, challenging to figure out those sort of scenarios. Um, but it's also possible to, um, figure out that by 2040, it's not only York university that will be on the path to reducing uh, net emissions, but also other organizations as well. So, um, how much of the path of net zero emissions by 2040 is going to be achieved by um, better procurement or just by economy-wide changes that are going to be happening in the coming few decades? How much is going to be deliberate um, by, by York, for example? Those are all the questions that could be examined through scenarios into the future. Um, we, we didn't do that in the current assessment. That's certainly possible. And that's what York will be doing. They'll be using the rich data that we have amassed through the, um, the database we built, um, for this to be able to, um, um, uh, yeah, to, to figure that out. Um, and then of course, um, one thing to appreciate is that the goal of net zero missions has the word net in there purposefully. And the net is an interesting and challenging word, um, and. So for everyone's benefit, in case it it needs to be said, let me just sort of elaborate on what that means, is that by whatever your target date, net zero emissions are the emissions emitted in that year minus whatever other um, actions are taken to soak up emissions in that same year. And so there's a variety of ways that emissions can be soaked up, and they can certainly be soaked up by what people call nature-based solutions. Um, Landscapes, ecosystems, um, aquatic uh, systems as well uh, can absorb a certain amount of emissions. They are already absorbing a certain amount of emissions, but there are things that we can do as humans to um, affect the landscape's potential to absorb emissions. The other thing that can be done too is to um, get others to reduce emissions. And for us to direct them to do that, and then to buy their reductions, so it be, counts as ours, it was on a net effect. That's what's sort of captured by what we would call offsets. And so that's um, also possible um, as well. And so then the net is the total gross emissions minus the offsets and the, uh, you know, including the nature-based uh, solutions in that year. And then you end up with the net emissions uh, in that time period. Um, so net zero emissions is going to be some combinations of very aggressive reductions in to- in, in gross emissions and potentially to net it to zero, um, a, um, a purchase of offsets. Uh, and then that raises some interesting questions around what sort of offsets um, are not only Possible but desirable, and potentially the university and others might want to have various qualifications on what it would like to uh, consider. Um, that's the case right now. Um, for example, one can purchase emissions offsets um, for any number of activities that that one does. Um, I've done that for flights, for example. Um, I can I can go on to uh, uh, onto the web to a provider of um, of offsets. And they can generate the calculation for me, for my flight, from this point to that point, this is how many missions are generated. And then I can purchase, um, an offset. And then the details around the offsets, typically I'm asked, um, do, do I want to limit my purchase of offsets to only activities that take place in Canada or what I want to, um, potentially purchase, um, global off, uh, you know, offsets from other parts of the world. And then there can also be other questions around do I want offsets that are third-party certified to be gold standard or what would I be okay with offsets that are of a, another standard Another question too is what's the time period over which the offsetting would take place right. do I want the offsetting to take place in a very short period or an extended period uh etc so lots of details in that sort of marketplace of offsets I guess um but um but yeah and so that's also interesting to think about for the future that there's sort of a a huge I guess possibility or need space uh for uh enterprises for creative people for even for universities to devise actions that could be done to reduce emissions even for other people's benefits if they were to be selling the credits to others and also on managing the lands and waters within let's say the campuses and York has campuses in Toronto they also have a campus in Costa Rica as well for example um what are the things that can be done on how the landscape is managed to maximize its carbon uptake potential? There's some questions around that too, and that's uh, certainly in the realm of possibilities of getting to net zero emissions.
0: So, um, of course, York is uh, just one organization in the world, and and then in aggregate, you 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 also look at the world's ecological footprint. And as measured by its use of natural resources, such as food, water, cropland, fisheries, and fuel, the world's ecological footprint has tripled since 1961. I believe I got that uh, from uh, the Ecological Footprint uh, Initiative website. Uh, What implications does this have for our standard of living going forward? If we're, you know, the, the... the reason we have so much of a footprint is because we're basically utilizing the resources out there for a standard of living. But you know, now we have to find a way to, to slow that down.
1: And and there's the challenge to humanity. Mm-hmm. It's um, what what's sort of really interesting and useful about ecological footprint accounting and biocapacity accounting is that it is very useful for engaging in questions about the possibilities and and constraints of getting to net zero emissions for the planet so canada uh, is one of I think 120 and, and plus countries that have committed to getting to net zero emissions by 2050 and um you know it's fairly straightforward to calculate the emissions um produced in canada in that time period and also divide calculations of how much um uptake of carbon by landscapes that would be in Canada in that, in that year. Um, but when we're thinking about getting to net zero emissions, we hear people talking about things like planting trees to soak up more emissions, but that obviously raising questions of, well, where are the trees going to be? And what landscapes are they on currently? If they're on lands that are already absorbing carbon, what's the net change in that and so on the um from an emissions perspective the best place to plant trees is on lands that are also the most high high yielding from an agricultural perspective there's interest in using biofuels rather than fossil fuels and getting to net zero emissions especially for as we might imagine planes for example that uh, could probably be retooled much more easily for using a different form of fuel liquid fuel rather than you know battery packs or something um, Okay, well, for that, that means you've got to be using cropland for biofuels rather than for food. Okay, um, there's also an interest though in using more forest products or timber products as a substitute for mineral products in construction. So, building um, even taller buildings out of wood products rather than as much steel and, and concrete has been used historically. Okay, well, if we have that, we got to have forests for yielding. Forest products, not for soaking up emissions, et cetera. Um, and on top of all that, there's ambitions for more people living here, more people eating and all that sort of stuff. So when we put it all together, the comprehensiveness of measuring ecological footprint is very apropos of that issue because we're measuring, um, all those components within that same framework and we're comparing the ecological footprint to the capacity of the lands and waters to yield us timber products, or to yield us carbon absorption, to yield us space for infrastructure, or to yield us areas for cropland or grazing land, uh, et cetera. And so that's where the framework of ecological footprint and biocapacity county, I think is really useful to exploring sort of possibilities and constraints of getting to net zero um, emissions. And the other thing that's really rich about it, too, is that we calculate the ecological footprint of all the production that takes place in a jurisdiction like Canada over the course of the year, but we also calculate the ecological footprint embodied in all the imports to Canada and also all the exports from Canada to the rest of the world. And that's very significant for a country like Canada, where about a third of all the stuff that we produce is consumed in the rest of the world, and about a third of all the stuff that we consume in this country is produced in the rest of the world. So there's a high degree of uh, interrelationships through trade with the rest of the world. And, um, it turns out in, in Canada that the, um, each dollar of exports has about twice the ecological footprint embodied in its, each dollar of imports. Mm. So even though our ecological footprint of consumption is very high globally speaking, it's even higher on a production basis. So when we're thinking about getting to net zero emissions, um, it's also very useful in our uh, sort of accounting system that, um, that we've devised it to be attentive to that distinction of the ecological footprint of production in the country and also the ecological footprint of consumption. And when we're thinking about getting to net zero emissions, to what extent are we going to be relying upon other countries also getting to net zero emissions? So, in other words, our imports will be less, uh, let's say, footprint intensive, or to what extent, because um, of our trade relationships with the rest of the world, the rest of the world's success on getting to net zero emissions or not is going to be so much more dependent on whether we're successful in getting mm-hmm. there. Because the rest of the world depends much more on our products from a firm perspective you know, than the other way around. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah.
0: So, Eric, this has been a terrific conversation. Thank you so much. This is the last question, and I want to weave in Uh, You and I both work at the uh, Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change at York University in Toronto, and we're having a Green Career Fair on January 18th, 2024. It seems to me that the work that you do and the Ecological Footprint Initiative does uh, is sort of an interesting avenue for students to look at how to contribute to a greener future. What kind of jobs are related to the work your initiative does?
1: Lots of jobs are related to the, in the to the work that our initiative uh, does. Um, so many of the jobs now and for the future that relate to the environment involve working with information and data. And so um, we're tremendously proud that in the Ecological Footprint Initiative, we don't only generate data and information that's useful to the world and to enterprises like York University, but we do so in a way that is student powered because it's generated by the work of students who we train up in what we call sustainability informatics. Uh, and we, we do this uh, through the faculty of environmental and urban change um, at York. And um, so it's about training the students in, um, in working with data and working with databases, the high powered databases of, of, of the world in coding in uh, data cleaning and quality assurance in data visualizations and data storytelling, um, and um, you know within an academic sense of also problematizing uh, data and information and access and governance of it and um, what's included, what's omitted, what uh, et cetera. And uh, yeah, so tremendously proud of um, the, the work that we've been able to do in the years that we've been at this, in uh, training the students. Um, and having their education also include the experiential component of producing these international accounts of ecological footprint and biocapacity and having them named as such, uh, producing such a very useful uh, data set for, uh, for the world um, and for undertaking um, more specific uh, projects at a smaller scale, such as the York University's uh, Emissions and Ecological Footprint Assessment um, uh, that I, um, worked on with, uh, with the uh, Sophie and, uh, Elizabeth. And, um, so yeah, we're tremendously proud of that. And then, so the students that have gone through this, um, are working a, an awesome range of, um, of, of jobs and different enterprises. Uh, so we've got, um, all kinds of, uh, rich array of experiences, everything from, what might seem like the most obvious of um, being a data analyst for companies that measure emissions and report on them to government agencies and that sort of thing, Um, all the way along the spectrum uh, to um, working in the arts sector and trying to understand how much environmental impact the arts sector has and what are the ways to lessen that impact uh, and so on. And everything uh, in between there, working in public sector, private sector, um, small business, large business, um, et cetera. And a lot of our students uh, tend to be also international students. And so it's really awesome then that they're carrying on this awesome work internationally in other countries um, of the world. And we stay in touch through, um, you know, through through our networks and so on. Um, so, yeah, so um, if uh, anyone's interested in getting into this realm, um, our program the Ecological Footprint Initiative has a has a training program through the MES program, um, and also through the PhD program in the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change. Um, but we're also keen to broaden that so that students from other departments and faculties can also uh, join with us as we work towards um, building up sort of a pan-university sort of um, sort of program or or um, a sort of certificate and specification around sustainability. Informatics, and that's the banner that we're using to characterize that. Um, so yeah, if anyone's interested in that realm, uh, please, uh, reach out to us through the Ecological Footprint Initiative and we'll be happy to, um, welcome you to the program. Um, and, uh, for anyone else who does career fairs and so on is looking for people as examples of what kind of interesting work they're doing, how they've taken something like environmental studies uh, to interesting sectors and interesting realms of of work and so on. Uh, we've got lots of um, awesome people that have graduated through our program that we can uh, connect you with to be sort of those examples, to profile, to inspire the next generation.
0: Awesome. Yeah. As you point out, I mean, this is a, a daunting global humanity changing project to, to, uh, reduce our, our, our ecological footprint. And it touches on so many disciplines. My guest today was Eric Miller. Thank you so much, Eric, for being on the show. Very welcome. Thanks for listening to the Humanity in the Loop podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests of this podcast are their own and do not reflect those of their employer or any other affiliation. Humanity is not automatic.